I, I trust that you did bring the word with you this morning, and uh, and I, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis today. We're going to Genesis chapter 19, and we're beginning a two-part sermon series this morning, and the next Sunday uh, we'll continue the study, but today we're just going to kind of uh, kick it off. Um, I guess I want to begin by asking the question, by the way, it's good to see everybody here early in the morning, okay? I mean, the time change and all of that, and some people probably got caught off guard by that, but uh, so I'm uh, looking forward to the next service as well. We do need to take offering. That's true. Let's do that. Uh, service, won't you come? And uh, we're going to just pass those plates as I begin my message this morning. We didn't take the offering. Sorry about that. So service, won't you come? And uh, and let's just begin to pass the plates. May the Lord's blessing be upon this offering as we take the offering. So let's just begin to pass the plates. And uh, we can do that while I begin this message this morning. Uh, but I, I want to begin by asking the question, um, how's your HMO doing? <laughs> Right. I mean, how is your medical care or Kaiser or whoever you have that provides your your medicine to you or your care? Um, And, you know, one of the terms that comes to mind when I think about, you know, our medical care, our insurance, whoever that organization is, is this idea of pre-care or what is the phrase that they use? uh, Preventive care. And they love preventive care. I mean, those organizations, those insurance companies, because it saves them money. As they are taking care of you and you're in good health and your body's functioning well. And they love it because it's saving them money. And so there is this idea of preventive care and they're always, you know, sending emails or they're always reminding you and all that. And so I thought to myself as I, I began my study here on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, I saw, thought to myself, then what would it look like if we were to apply that concept to our spiritual life? I mean, this idea of preventive care, of, you know, making the best decisions, not just a decision, but best decisions. Because oftentimes we we make a sequence of bad decisions, even in the spiritual realm. And we make the sequence of bad decisions and we realize that there's something wrong, that we're off track, and there's a need for spiritual preventive care. Again, we're talking about spiritual aid, right? How do we provide spiritual aid to ourselves? Well, let's go to the example here of Sodom and Gomorrah. And specifically, we're going to focus... Focus on Lot as we begin looking at these first few verses. In fact, I think the text, yeah, the text is 19 verses 1 through 9. I don't think I'll get all the way to verse 9. But I want us just to begin to listen in regards to this idea of spiritual aid. And maybe possibly what Lot is doing as an example to us. And maybe how we can apply that to our own life. So let's look at Genesis chapter 19 beginning at verse 1. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening. Lot was sitting near the gate of the city. When Lot saw the angels, he got up to greet them. He bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please come to my house. You can wash and spend the night there. Then you can go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we'll spend the night in the town square. But Lot wouldn't give up. And so they went with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them. He baked bread without using yeast. And they ate. Before Lot and his guests had gone to bed, all the men came from every part of the city of Sodom, young and old men alike, and they surround the house. And I'm not going to read probably any further than that because you've you've read the rest of the story. In fact, we'll jump in and look at that next Sunday because really at this point it just turns ugly. 
I mean, today we're looking at kind of really more the lighter side of the message. And then the next Sunday, if I can say this, we're going to go to the dark side. And we're going to look at the, kind of the darker side of the message. But, but, but as we begin to read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, really specifically Lot, I understand it's, it's very complex. It raises all kinds of flags and, and, and questions, you know, that we have in our mind in regards to, you know, why is this happening? What's going on? Why did Lot respond like that? But I, again, I want to begin with the lighter side or a, really a, a lighter touch in regards to preventive spiritual care. In fact, the first step in preventive spiritual care, if you're filling in the blanks here, is to identify ways to care for others. In fact, you've heard the saying, you know, the best way to care for yourself is what? To care for others. The best way to bless yourself is to spend time being a blessing to others. I've heard people say that. In fact, this is the first thing that I notice about Lot. And perhaps it, it, it was, you know, maybe uh, their divine status, you know, as Lot responds to these guests that are at the city gate. And he, he bows down. Some commentaries uh, say that, you know, Lot did not know that they were divine or that they were angels. Some do. And I, I kind of lean towards the fact that he probably knew there was something special that was going on. But notably, what he does do is he does not give up on giving honor and care to these debt. To these guests, whether it was culture or, or whether it was the fact that they recognized, he recognized that they are divine beings, but he does spend time giving them care. Now, I need to be clear, this is not a self-help recipe. This is not the possibility of positivity thinking that we read in some book. But no, there is this something about the creation that God has created in the way that he's created us. I mean, something about the dynamic and the concept of caring for others that that affects us, that impacts our lives. I will never forget some of those experiences I had in the first few churches that I pastored when uh, AA wanted to come and meet on our campus, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and, and so we allowed that, and so we had some of these AA groups meeting on campus. And because I wanted to connect to those people, I attended some of the meetings, not because I had a problem, <laughs> but because I really wanted to connect. And so I began to learn about AA and, of course, the 12-step process. But some of the things that I noticed, or one specific thing that I noticed, is that as an individual, they're studying these 12 steps, right? And instead of recognizing God as God, they do not use the term God. They use the term, what is it? You remember what the term is? That higher power. And as they recognize their higher power, which is God, and they as individuals discover new levels of self-awareness, it seems this parallels their willingness to assist someone else. Does that make sense? It seems like the more aware they become of themselves or the more self-aware that they become, the more willing they are to give attention or to sponsor or to care for others. I guess what I'm saying is I'm convinced that caring for others approaches that plane of servant leadership that we witness in the life of Christ. I mean, when we think about you know, who Christ was and how he lived his life out. And as we learn this idea or this dynamic of caring for others, we're beginning to approach that plane or that level of ministry. And then this approaches the level of self-healing that only is arrived at by truly learning how to value others. But the key is then that we are acting upon those convictions that God puts upon our heart. And this is where, you see, the gospel, if you're, you're with me still, this is where the gospel becomes real. 
This is where the gospel becomes something that is lived out, something that we are acting upon, something that really becomes a revolution. I mean, a real revolution of the heart. In fact, I go to one theologian, William Willimon, um, and I think I have the quote here. Um, he, he wrote this. He says, Jesus didn't die as a frustrated, failed revolutionary. I love that phrase. Jesus didn't die as a frustrated, failed revolutionary. His death was the revolution. And the revolution is not only the transformation of self. I mean, Christ comes in, he enters us, and we live in a spirit-filled life, and he transforms us. That's true. But it's also for the fortification of others. If we're saying that Jesus Christ is the standard, and Jesus is the one that we are lifting, then we see that there is this reality that we are called to the fortification of other people's lives. In fact, I think of John chapter 15, verse 12, where Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as what? As I have loved you. That you love one another as I have loved you. And I love the simplicity in the New Testament here that is meshing with the complexity of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because as we move through the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the complexities and the questions that we begin to ask, why this and why that, there, there is then this comfort and this reality that maybe God is doing something deeper than we really, really realize. In fact, I, I like the way that uh, Willimon, this theologian, he, he talks about this dynamic and, and he says it like this in another quote for you. It takes great faith, particularly faith in the gift of the Holy Spirit. To be honest with our people that we have not a clue to the meaning of some biblical passage. Or that we have no sense of satisfying ending for a sermon. Or that we are unsure of precisely what the congregation ought to do after hearing a given text. The most ethically dangerous time within a sermon is toward the end of the sermon. When we move from proclamation to application and act as if we know more than God. Because, you see, this is the application. I mean, this is God is intent. He's communicating. But then why is it? Then we do this. I mean, we know what the will of God is. And this is the application. But then there, there's this direction. See, caring is the application part of the gospel. I mean, I don't know if this is making sense to you, but man, that is the call that he's called us to, that, that there is this standard that he's calling us to care for those that are around us. You say, well, pastor, I mean, pastor, how do we implement that? I mean, how do we act upon that truth this morning if we were to care for others? Well, I have a couple ideas. Number one, caring for others begins in your heart. <laughs> Amen. Caring for others begins in your heart. And you say, well, pastor, how do I begin? I say this, ask God to change your heart. Because if you ask God to change your heart, he will go to work. And folks, I want to say something. There are two prayers that God answers 100% of the time in my book. I've experienced this. 100% of the time, there are two prayers that God always answers. You know what the first prayer is? The first prayer is wisdom. When I pray for wisdom, God gives me wisdom. I don't know why I'm not anybody special. In fact, the scripture says that if we call upon her, if we we call out to her, if we'll ask for wisdom, that God promises he will give us wisdom. And I've experienced that when I pray for wisdom, God gives me wisdom. Now it's up to me to whether I'm obedient or I deny or not. And so he will answer the prayer of wisdom. You know what the second prayer is? That God always answers 100% of the time. It has changed my heart, oh God. 
And I don't know why it is, but man, when God begins to uh, answer that prayer, he gets down inside of me and he gets in the very inner parts of my being. He begins to impress me and shape me in that person that he's called me to be because God wants to change your heart. And as he's changing your heart, then we'll begin to listen and we're listening to what God is saying and, and what God is asking of us. And it is very likely the very thing that you're thinking is the very thing that God wants you to hear. Because God is speaking to you in your consciousness and he's very relevant, he's very alive and he will answer your prayer when you say, oh God, change my heart. And then the next step is that we keep our eyes open to see what God is showing us because you're wanting God to change your heart and transform your heart and his eyes or your eyes will reveal what he's saying to you and you can then implement that, what he's saying to you. I I, I moved every time I see this couple out on the corner of Friars Road and uh, Mission Gorge and it's the same couple and she's special needs and I'm not sure what his issue is but they're living there I mean they've been on the corner holding the sign up ever since I've lived here and a few times we bought him a meal over at Denny's and said, go to Denny's and pay for your meal or, or something that the Lord lays on our heart. And, and, and I'm saying, Lord, change my heart because I'm calloused. And sometimes in my heart, I'm just, you know, so resistant to hear the voice of what God is calling me to do. And folks, I guess I need to say this church, let the Lord change your heart. Amen. And you'll do that. And, and, and then that's the first step. Caring for others begins in your heart. You know, and the second step is caring for others happens with your hands. Now, I, I need to say this. Um, <laughs> this can be inconvenient. Because <laughs> caring for others happens with your hands. And it does not have to be impossible. I mean, we can do this. We, we can allow God to, to mobilize us and to use our hands and to begin to care. And in fact, as our church DNA, it, it's real. You know, our DNA, who we are. I mean, I know we're a driving church and we have all these different influences of who we have been. So our DNA is real, but our DNA is not final. And God can transform our heart. He can change our heart. He can move our heart so that we're willing to respond with our hands and, and do ministry. I, I love the fact that we're a giving church. We are. We are a giving church. We give well. We, we are a caring church. In fact, um, I, I just want to brag on... Uh, Tanya Lehman. I don't know if she's here this morning. She might be in the next service. But Tanya Lehman, she's in ahead of fishes and loaves, and that's our mill train ministry. And when there's a search and there's special need, and all we have to do is make one phone call, boom, she drops what she's doing, and she begins to send the emails out. How many have been a part of the mill train ever? You've served on it, or you've been a recipient of it, and you've been you've been impacted because there is this caring that has happened that's happening with our hands. So caring for others happens with our hands. And and man, it would do us well if we could see more of that. So obviously, the first step. The first step I have here listed in uh, preventive spiritual care is caring for others. What is the second step? Well, the second step, if you're filling the blank, the second step in preventive spiritual care is to identify misplaced values. To identify misplaced values, and this is going to get a little bit sticky. I mean, if you think about what that phrase is really saying. To identify misplaced values. And we really see this here. I mean, it really shines at us kind of like the lights on a, you know, on a semi truck or like a 50,000 candle searchlight. And it's shining so brightly into our spiritual eyes that we become spiritually blind. 
And we become so spiritually blind that we trade what really is of value for stuff that is not of that much value. And so we trade these things that are so important and so valuable for these things that we think, you know, is what we want. And whether we even process in our head that they have value or not, but we make this trade happen and we give up so much for so little. That's how I want to say that we give up so much for so little. Like, for example, we give up sometimes our self-esteem, you know, for acceptance. We give up our self-esteem so that we might be belong or that we might be a part of and especially in student ministries when you're young and you're growing and, and belonging is so important and all these influences that are pressuring in the, the peer pressure that's happening. And so we sacrifice self-esteem for acceptance. Or our purity for empty temporary pleasure. You see, yes, it's true that true love waits, but true love wants what's best for you. True love wants what's best for you. True love does not want the temporary pleasure. You see, so often we trade our purity for empty pleasure. And apply that as you will. We think of this in the revelation of what it means to us this morning. Because part of the revelation is that there is an integrity issue at stake. And huh, that's another one. Integrity for momentary safety of not facing things as they really are. And for some reason we've bought into this fantasy idea that we can make new ideas or we can create new realities and call it reality. But folks, it's not reality. And we trade our integrity for something that is not real. That is called lying. It's lying to ourselves and it's lying to others. And oftentimes we trade that integrity for, for what is so empty. And another is another big one is faith. We trade faith for what the world has to offer. And we think, oh, the world has so much. And, you know, it's so important. And so we trade even our own faith and it gets watered down for what the world is trying to sell us. I mean, that's where we come back to the text. I mean, Lot's ill-placed priorities had been following him around for some time. I mean, all you have to do is remember the story because it's, you know, a sequence of bad decisions. And yes, the scripture calls him a righteous man at different times. But a righteous man that's making some bad decisions in, in the process. And notice, obviously, God had not abandoned Lot and his family. And again, it's quite a story that unfolds before us. And we'll get into that on the dark side next Sunday. So you don't want to miss next Sunday. But, but you know, there are some prices and sacrifices he has to make, though God is with him and on his side. And God's looking out for him. But he would have been better off if he would have given attention to preventive care. Like, here's a couple ideas, like avoiding the pressure of bad influence. Is that an old one or what? You know, avoiding the pressure of bad influence. I mean, I'm, I'm th- sitting here thinking in my mind, what in the world was Lot doing in that city, in that town anyhow? I mean, what was he doing spending time with those kinds of people with such tremendous bad influence? And what was holding them in the township? And, and next week again, we'll talk about the line that, that he is walking and how dangerous that line is. But, but why were they there? And why was the family not more evangelistic? Why were they not, you know, shouting it from the rooftops that they were servants of the living God? And so they wouldn't even approach that, that, that plane because they knew how committed to Christ or to God they were. Excuse me, to God that they were. I think of the the phrase, the road to destruction is paved with good intentions. 
You know, maybe Lot was justifying in his mind, you know, trying to put one foot in one world and foot in another foot in the other world. Avoid the pressure of bad influence. Again, an old one. Here's the next one. Avoid the pressure of your own fear. Avoid the pressure of your own fear. How, how do we provide preventive spiritual care? Avoid the pressure of your own fears. Because fear, I mean, it, it's a tough one. It's a killer. I guess I want to say this like this. A past mistake is not your future. A past mistake. You see, the enemy wants you to, to live there. The enemy wants you to dwell in that past mistake and those problems that you had. But I believe this with all my heart. It is scriptural. Your past mistake is not your, your future. That's what forgiveness is all about. Amen. I embarrassed myself terribly. I was golfing with uh, Chad Wolf and uh, Rick Randolph. And uh, we were uh, over here. What? golf course the admiral sandek or this one over here in the valley and and uh we were on the first tee i hadn't golfed for a year i mean it was a long time and i and we were on the first tee and rick was behind me there up on the tee box and chad was over off to the side off the tee box by the cart and he was like scratching at his ball or something so he didn't see what happened but you have to get this in your mind when you golf if you're not a golfer when you're on the first tee of course there's 18 holes right but when you're on the first tee there is an audience right because there are the people the teams that are getting ready to take off and tee off and so there's usually kind of a line of people so there's like an audience and there's a starter too that works for the golf club you know course and and so they're there to make sure we're following the rules and so you got them they're watching so it's a little nerve-wracking teeing off on the first hole and i'm up there and i haven't played golf for a year and i'm up there and i thought well i don't have anything to lose and and so i thought to myself i'm going to just kill this ball i mean i love hitting the ball hard okay uh, but but I, I'm just going to kill this ball. Have you ever heard the phrase, you know, um, he swung so hard he swung it out of his own shoes? Okay, I swung so hard that I swung right out of my own shoes. I mean, I lifted myself up off the ground. By the way, it was a perfect hit right down the middle, probably the furthest drive of the three of us. And, and anyhow, I swung so hard and lifted myself out of my shoes. And before I knew it, I was on my back. Now, folks, I want to tell you, this ever had a slow motion experience? I mean, it's, ooh, I hear, I can, I can see the club. Ooh, and I'm up in the air two inches. And all of a sudden, I'm now falling in slow motion ooh, on my back. And, of course, all the people are laughing and, and you know, the guy that's working for the 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 golf the club that he's laughing and and Chad was looking at his ball so he missed it but anyhow I landed flat on my back I mean it was a failure if anything was a failure right and uh, but as silly as I am I I went ahead and had a great drive and I chipped it upon to the the green and then two putt I think I two putted I think I parted the hole uh, but anyhow by the end of that hole that first hole now by the end of that hole. I had forgotten that I'd fell flat on my back. I totally forgotten. I guess this, this older age is kind of a benefit in some ways. But I'd totally forgotten that I fell flat on my back. And so the next tee, man, I killed the ball. Perfect drive. And man, I had a fantastic game. I played well because I forgot that failure on that first tee. You see, again, I want to say it, you know, a past mistake is not your future. Had I dwelt on that fall, that failure, that falling on my back, had I dwelt on it, I probably would have had a terrible game. 
But I look at the passage here and I realize that, yes, our past mistake is not our future. Fear can immobilize us. Fear can can disable future possibilities. I mean, look what Lot was willing to sacrifice. I mean, think about this for a moment as we look at the next part of the the passage and, and we'll get there. But. There's this thing with his daughters where the men are trying to do these horrible things. And he says, oh, by the way, I, my daughters are here. You can have my daughters. And I'm thinking in my head, how did Lot get so far off track? I mean, why was Lot willing to make that kind of sacrifice that he was just that lost? He was so far down the wrong path, five miles down the wrong path, that he was willing to do and make the kind of sacrifice that, that he, he was suggesting. You know, I don't think we think straight when we are not thinking straight. <laughs> Does anybody agree with me? I don't think we think straight when we're not thinking straight. And so it's important that we're thinking straight. And that we're on track and then things are level. I remember in seminary I had a, a, a tile business, a ceramic tile business. And I laid tile. And I try not to let that out too much. But I, I did ceramic tile in uh, for showers and patios and around pools. And I got to tile H&R Block, the H&R Block's front porch. And the founder of Pizza Hut, I tiled part of his house. And, and so I had this experience of tiling. When you go into, uh, you know, the bathroom, you're going to tile the shower or the tub. You don't just start slapping tile, you know, the square tile up on the wall, obviously. The first thing that you do is you, you have this thing called a plumb line, and it's heavy. And you pull the string out of this, this apparatus, this box-like thing, and you pull the string out. And inside the box is powdered chalk, maybe blue powdered chalk. And as you pull the string out, there's a, a metal piece that has a, a hole in it and you put a nail in the wall on the sheetrock and you hang the string on the nail and then you pull the string taut after you've allowed gravity to cause it to hang perfectly straight up and down no matter what the house is doing the chalk line is perfectly straight up and down and then you make the line tight and you snap the chalk line that is your chalk line and then you take the big long level and you you put it where you think your first row of tile should be you've measured the tile and you know it's going to be in a certain position on that that chalk line and you take your level and you put it there and make sure the bubbles in the middle and then you take your pencil and you draw that level line and now after you've done that you have in front of you not just the chalk line and the vertical line but now or excuse me the horizontal line but now you have this perfect cross and you're on track and you will be on track as long as you follow those lines things will work out because you have the perfect cross And I'm thinking about life and how life works out. There is another perfect cross that I think of. And that is the perfect cross of Jesus Christ. And in the perfect cross of Jesus Christ, we are balanced and we are on track. And our plumb line is straight when we're with Jesus Christ. And I believe that when we get off track and we're not thinking right, we're not thinking right. I never forget when I knocked on the door of this family and uh, this guy came to the door and he had a big beard and he had a pair of coveralls on with no shirt. We were in Greenville, Texas and he had a little tiny, small, petite little wife and three little tiny kids. And, and I remember, you know, arriving, the mother and the kids had visited the church one time. 
I remember arriving, knocking on the door, and I look in the house. It's a little disheveled, and the kids' faces are dirty, and their hair's all messed up. And this big guy comes to the door. I'd met the wife and the kids. But this big guy, I hadn't met him. It's the husband. And he came to the door with a joint in his hand. <laughs> and he has this marijuana. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if I want to go in this house or not. <laughs> I'm making a pastoral visit. And, and so they invite me to come in. And I go ahead and make the decision. I come in and I sit down on the couch and the little kids are, you know, running around. And the wife was thrilled that I was visiting there as a pastor making a house call because they had visited church one time. And, and uh, the husband was pretty intimidating. And I was afraid. I, I remember physically I could feel my nerves physically shaking because I was intimidated by him. But then I began to talk about who I was. He was asking me questions and tell my story a little bit. And I began to share Jesus. I don't mean that in some just vague, ambiguous way. But I began to tell him about Jesus. And what Jesus did for him. And that Jesus was God that became flesh. And that Jesus went to the cross for his sins. I began to share the gospel. And all of a sudden those nerves, that shaking that I had. All of a sudden those nerves just went away. And sitting on that couch, I had the opportunity to share Christ with that big burly man with that beard. And I could tell his little wife was, be, was thrilled. And they came to church. And he chose Christ. I guess what I'm saying in that is that I, I, I've experienced that when the, the plumb line is right and in and, and your level and you're tracking with Christ, that the fear dissipates. When you respond to what God is calling you to do. The fear just dissipates. And maybe you've been struggling with you know, one thing or another. Or maybe serving the Lord in one capacity. Or, or teaching a class. Or being on the church board. And there's a little bit of trepidation. A little bit of fear. But in the midst of being on track. And where you should be with Jesus Christ. By the power of God. The fear dissipates. And you can be what it is that God's called you to be. Because you're being obedient to him and his voice. I want to invite us to be that church. Amen. Let's be that church board. Let's be that church Sunday school teacher that we are going to move forward and hear the call. And God will take care of us. Let us pray. Precious Father in heaven, I thank you for answered prayer. I thank you, Father, that you're speaking, that you're in the midst of what's happening this morning. That, Lord, that, that in this we are wanting to glorify you. You know that. And so, Father, I pray that you just be with that one this morning. That is just hearing your voice. That one that's had a little trepidation in regards to serving or following your will. Or sharing Jesus with that neighbor. Or Jesus with that dear friend. I pray, Father, that you would just dissolve the fear in our heart as we respond to you to maybe teach the class. Or to be a leader as maybe you've called us to be. Or maybe to serve quietly. Whatever capacity it is that you're calling us to, Father. I pray that your will will be done. And that you would inspire your people today. To inspire that saint just to be obedient. To hear your voice. And to serve, Lord, in every capacity that you're calling them. Father, thank you for speaking this morning. Thank you for what Lot has shown us. That we begin by caring for others. That's so often the very best medicine. 
to care for others. Help us to do that. But Lord, also, may we be bold and willing to follow you, to hear your voice. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for speaking. We pray all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.